Hello and welcome to No Easy Answers with Jules Taylor, the show where we unpack and examine our lives, our politics, and society. These conversations are meant to create meaningful distinctions, refine our understanding of the world around us, and maybe, if we're lucky, accomplish a small amount of the work that I'm told takes years of therapy. Uh, so welcome to the show, our second episode, all my guys, gals, and non-binary pals. I'm your friend, ally, accomplice, and I'm your host, Jules Taylor. Um... So, uh, the last time we were here, we spoke about something that I was just calling the notion. And just as a quick recap of what we discussed and what we'll pick up on today. Um, so the notion was like a it's, a, it's a series of three sentences. I refer to them as like tenets of this sort of collective thing I'm referring to as the notion, right? And they're kind of heavy sentences, um, but check it out. So the notion is and what I'll just keep referring to as the notion, uh, is that there is a right answer for every question. And there is a proven method that's reliable in order to arrive at the right answer for every question. And all of these right answers fit together in some sort of uh, cosmic jigsaw puzzle. And uh, so I, I, you know, I, I examined that for a while and kind of sat with it and had some thoughts around it. And... Uh, you know, I kind of, I, I, I suggested that the, the notion is some sort of expression of like an existential angst and a need for order and that humans are order making machines, uh, meaning that we lead the crusade against uncleanliness and we invented soap and we attempt to make order out of our immediate lives um, by organizing all of our stuff. Uh, and then we... Uh, we seek that similar type of order in our external world. So we seek out trying to make sense of our political systems, our society, um, our, uh, you know, the geopolitics of like, you know, international relations. You know, we, uh, we study race relations. We study uh, gender theory, right? We just, maybe we crave this sort of, uh, this sort of order, or we need to know that things, uh, make sense in some way, even if they're chaotic, nonsensical, and um, filled with contradictions. So when we talked about the notion, you know, we I, I basically got to around to a point where I said, you know, I don't really agree with the notion, and maybe there's freedom in the chaos, right? Um, which is a sort of like an optimistic, nihilistic sort of take on things, I would think. Um, but here's what I want to talk about today, and this was something I probably would have talked about anyway at some point, but um, since I, I received some feedback from the first show, I'm like, hey, Jules, you're an atheist, right? Why do you spend so much time thinking about God, and why did you talk about God so much during, uh, during your first show? Well, it's not so much God that I'm concerned with, man. Um, I, I just don't think that there is a that there is an honest way to engage with philosophy and especially moral theory uh, without taking into account theology. Um, so what do I mean by, by moral theory? Um, I mean that there are, I mean, first of all, if we define morality, right? Uh, the extent to, uh, to which an action is right or wrong, a particular system of values and principles of conduct, uh, especially one held by a specific person or society, uh, principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong and good or bad behavior. Um, so I, I tend to think of moral theory as like the process of um, analyzing the morality of a specific action or a specific outcome that every ind individual does. Um, but I, I don't think there's a fair way to in philosophy in general, like, I don't think there's a fair way to engage within moral theory um, without at least considering what theology has to say about it. Um, and I also think whether or not you are religious or you are uh, non-practicing religious or you are uh, not religious of all, and maybe you're an atheist, right? Uh, you are a non-theist. You are a person that refuses, that outright believes that there is no God, 
right? Well, you're, you're not immune from Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, hegemony, we could call it, right? Like the sort of seeming sort of monopoly or dominance that religion has in the conversation about moral theory. Um, so briefly here, man, I'm, I'm going to talk about moral theory and we'll, I, I say briefly, we, we might spend the rest of this episode talking about moral theory. So strap in exciting philosophy conversation here about things that interest me and that other people are tired of hearing me talk about. Right. But not you guys, you guys are here to talk about, listen to, uh, here to listen to me about talk about moral theory. All right. So check it out, man. Here's the moral theory pie chart, right? It's broken down into four equal slices. Uh, of course, depending on who you are, you might favor, uh, some slices of this moral pie chart, uh, more than others. So, um, the first sort of part of the moral pie chart uh, has to do with like absolutism and specifically religious absolutism. So, you know, I, as far as absolutism is concerned, of course, the, the, the continual conversation in ethics in order to sort of further refine our senses of morality, in order to further refine uh, our systems of judgment of what makes a good action or what makes a, a morally just uh uh, way of living one's life that has to do with the ongoing conversation between absolutists and relativists and um, but for now we're going to talk about that kind of the absolutist side of the equation and the first first of four parts of this moral pie chart comes down to like religious absolutism now religious absolutism is a thing that I would say the rules of conduct and good behavior are static since the commands of God are to be followed under any and all conditions. Um, so a couple things about this, right? Uh, you know, so religious absolutists, it's, it's hard to, I, I don't operate in that world, man, because I feel like there are some contradictions there. Like one, I, we can't just, say that all morality comes from this sort of divine command sense of moral judgment processes, right? We morale, and this has been like kind of the struggle my entire life as a young atheist, 12, 13 years old, when I became an atheist to now is like, how do we release the, like the, the monopoly, the seeming monopoly on morality that religion has? Um, and some of the things I've thought along the way about this religious absolutism, man, is that like, you know, when we, when we talk about God and we say, Hey, God is kind, God is just, God is loving, God is generous, God is benevolent. All these, these, these are, are these not like ethical judgments we're placing on God? And, you know, if you're going to be absolutist about it, saying that, you know, all these commands are to be followed under any and all conditions, um, it's also a dangerous thing to have any sort of authority that is free from criticism. So, you know, in religion, it demands a sort of like, at least in Christianity, it demands a sort of blind obedience. And, you know, if you are, if blind obedience means you can't criticize your authority, which is a dangerous thing to do or to have, right? Um, any sort of authoritative, authoritative sense, uh, should be criticized and can't be free from criticism, right? Um, but these these ethical judgments like God is loving, God is just, God is benevolent, God is... Those things, being loving, benevolent, uh, being kind, they seem to arise out of a non-religious origin. Like, they seem to be separate and apart and arise from somewhere else, man. Um, so... I don't think that, again, going back to freeing the, you know, the monopoly of morality from the, the, the grip of religion, uh, if we could just simply acknowledge that the very ethical judgments that we place on God, calling them loving, beloved, uh, you know, kind, generous, whatever, those ethical judgments arise out of some other place that has nothing to do with theology. And so the fact that these sort of ethical judgments have an origin that is not that has nothing to do with with God or the concept of a God uh, 
speaks to a little bit more like, you know, we'll go down the line here to the second part of this moral pie chart. Right. But it just seems like that authority that sort of, you know, these these things that we consider all good and just things being benevolent, kind, da, 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 they, they, they come from somewhere else. And I'm not sure where they come from, but I know that it, it you know, that it, they're not exclusive towards the religious absolutist sort of sense of morality. Uh, but if we go down to the line, you know, maybe we have uh, a, a sort of conventionalist argument here, like that uh, conventionalism is uh, a form of like ethical, uh, it's a system of ethics that appeals to a social authority, that society creates a, uh, a voice of social authority for uh, code of conduct and what is moral, what is not moral. And, and this, you know, this sits in with materialist philosophy as well, understanding that uh, morality is a social construct that is a derivative of the customs uh, of a particular society at a particular time in, in, in history. Um, and also given particular resources and stuff, man, like it's kind of like, I, I, and forgive me if I get this custom completely wrong, but like, you know, in areas of the world where water is scarce, maybe the Middle East, you know, it is considered like a sign of respect or something if you spit on your hand and, and shake uh, another person's hand. Um, and that has to do with the materialist concern of water being scarce uh, more than anything else. And that became a custom, but that custom would not be a custom if it was like uh, presumably in a water rich area or something. Um, don't hold me, you know, completely accountable to this man. I don't, I don't know if that's a real custom or what. I'm just saying that something I've heard and I'm speaking off the cuff here in a non-edited fashion, right? Um, you know, uh, also, I mean, so here's the deal, right? So these, these parts of the pie chart, we've talked about like conventionalist absolution, which is the social customs that appeal to a social authority. And then we've talked about religious absolutism. Um, but these pie charts bleed over in a little bit, man, you know, they, they kind of cover, um, and depend on each other. You know, um, we see now things like the Catholic church acquiescing things about, uh, gay marriage, right? Uh, deeply, formerly deeply held beliefs about how it was against what the Bible says. And, you know, we see things like the Pope condoning it at this point or something. I'm not sure if he has or not, but religious leaders, I don't follow them closely. Right. But like we see these sort of, uh, we see the sort of conventionalist, uh, social authority, uh, influencing the religious absolutists of the world. Right. Um, they're inter interdependent on each other. Um, so, I don't, I don't know that any of them can really, and it only gets like more interdependent as we go down the line, right? So social norms, social authority, you also have like a religious absolutism, but then you also have like a rational absolutism, meaning that any individual could uh, reason themselves into a morally just action. Uh, and this was pioneered by like Immanuel Kant and Immanuel Kant is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult, like, read, reads, like, he's just difficult to understand. And maybe I, maybe I understand more as I, as, uh, as we speak to co social contracts and conventionalist, uh, uh, philosophies that I, that I tend to maybe understand a little bit more about Kant now. Um, and, and the cool thing about Kant, like, I... You know, Kant was a devout Christian. He was a Pietist. Um, and uh, just so you understand a little bit more about Immanuel Kant, like uh, maybe if I read you the definition of Pietism, uh, you can get a better idea of who the guy was, right? So Pietism is a movement within the uh, Lutheranism, within Lutheranism, that combines its emphasis on biblical doctrine with the Reformed emphasis on individual piety or piety and uh living a vigorous christian life so uh, yeah so that that's who Immanuel kant was right but surprisingly enough um he looked towards he kind of in his time he was a great thinker because he took ethics and he created a distinction between religious absolutism um you know he made ethics more fundamental than theology 
uh, instead of deriving his ethical principles from his beliefs about God, he derived his beliefs about God from what he regarded as a purely rational ethical belief. Um, so morals are, according to Kant, they're commands out of reason rather than commands of a divine parent. And this is like, this is a really interesting concept to me. Um, because there is, if we go back to talking about religious absolutism for a second and having an authority which is immune to criticism, like a god in any sort of theist sort of uh, world order would be, right? Because um, after all, this conversation is stemming from an existentialist cry for order and the notion, right? So, um, so if we go back to religious absolutism and we kind of, let's look at this from kind of a psychoanalytical perspective uh, lens right so if we turn on our psychoanalytical lens and we look at uh religious absolutism then we understand that like it's set up in a in a command from a parent to a child sort of situation right god the holy father commands you to be moral in x y and z action right but this is like a command from on high immune from criticism father parent sort of relationship situation that it operates in right but if you think about a human father and a parent that child the first sort of authority it receives is authority from a parent okay but eventually that child grows up to be independent and criticizes that parental authority right so if we take that sort of developmental concept of a child growing independent and criticizing their parents we understand that the that the father child relationship of religion infinitely extends the parent child relationship there is no growing independent of it there is no uh there is no uh criticizing it um and so for that matter, if we talked about it from a psychoanalytical sense, I mean, it seems like this would be religious absolutism, commands from on high, would be the very, very first and least evolved sense of morality, right? So <clears throat> anyway, it's just an observation. Again, I'm, I'm trying not to pick on Christianity or Christians or theists in any way. Um, I'm just trying to evaluate the moral theory from logical standpoints using some of the tools that philosophers have given us over the years whether it's freud or kant or um anyway the point is is that when we go back to this third part of the moral pie chart that was founded by Immanuel kant it's really remarkable that the guy was a devout pietist and yet created a distinction that morals were uh commands of reason um that instead of a divine uh, command from on high, right? Um, so it's that's what Kant calls like the the, the categorical imperative, um, and he he was still an absolutist, right? He, he said that all they're they're universal and unconditional, applying to all persons in all situations. Um, so if we talk about the moral pie chart bleeding into each other, right? Meaning that conventionalism, conventionalist thought process appeal to social authority still has some religious absolutism influence right and then if we talk about kant though he did try to create a divide and though he did try to um create a distinction between sort of the, a thought process of rational absolution you know kant's arguments for individual morality um they still actually it's hard to picture them uh, standing without religious absolutism underneath it or um, or conventionalist attitudes of an appeal to a social authority underneath it as well. Um, you know, and, and an argument that I could think of that goes against both religious absolutism and ra rational absolutism, um, you know, when Kant talked about the categorical imperative being universal and unconditional and applying to all persons in all situations man it's it's really hard to think of any rule that anyone would want everyone to follow under all circumstances right um 
an interesting thing about Kant, though, he thought that, like, as men decided to reason themselves into moral or just actions, right, reasoning themselves into morality, um, he really tried to reconcile the individual with the universal, meaning that, like he said, all the reasonings of men should reason down to the same reasonings, uh, which was an interesting sort of way of reconciling the individual to society. And um, so I so I think that's a really cool, uh, I mean, I feel like I, I know and understand more about Kant now than I have at any time in the past. Uh, but some, some other things about Kant, you know, he had this argument about, like, we cannot will, like, uh, we couldn't normalize uh, people lying when it was in their best interest because then the fabric of trust in society would break down. And so being an absolutist, there is this sort of... Uh, thought experiment which contradicts or points out a little bit of the uh, absurdity of Kant saying like would you if you agreed to open the door for a uh, bloodthirsty criminal that surely would kill you um, do you still open the door or do you break that promise and under a Kantian system of ethics you would be morally obligated to open the door for that criminal who would kill you um, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to like uh i mean anyway there there are going to be these sort of arguments which i mean when these principles and systems of ethics are stretched to their outer limits surely you can find situations which contradict them and prove them and uh, prove that they seem sort of illogical and irrational um you know, the other thing I'd like to say about the Kantian sort of ethics is that, like, it it really, like, it, it, it's a really beautiful thing to think that he gave so much credit towards the individual's ability to reason. Um, and I, I think that that sort of, you know, that holds up. Um, but then there's also, like, the other thing about, you know, so we've talked about Kant's arguments kind of being held up by conventionalist notions and religious absolutism but the fourth part of the pie chart is utilitarianism and even utilitarians you know came in and tried to compromise with Kant in some retorts to his arguments and they tried to compromise with him uh, like between somewhere between like a utilitarian relativism and a rational absolution uh area so maybe maybe Kant I don't know man it's like you can't take the scaffolding of conventionalist stuff and religious absolutism from underneath him because his arguments will fall apart but even then uh you had utilitarians who came along and tried to sort of uh compromise with his because uh, even they took issue to some of the absolutist points of view that Kant had i suppose so well utilitarianism man utilitarianism is like uh it's an interesting thing man utilitarianism and i you know it's a thought process that says that like uh, it doesn't care about the action. So it places all of the emphasis in terms of a moral judgment on the outcome of those actions, right? So utilitarian philosophers like John Stuart Mill, uh, John, uh, his dad uh, was... Uh, his dad, Mill, John Mill, I believe his name or something. Not John Stuart Mill, but James Mill was his name. Uh, James Mill kind of founded utilitarian thought with Jeremy Bentham. And uh, and then later on, John Stuart Mill came along and wrote, a, and wrote an essay called Utilitarianism. And that's where most of this comes from. But he just, he defined uh, happiness like as like the only thing that matters. Happiness being pleasure or absence of suffering, right? So he talked about a system of ethics which uh, basically just means whatever results, the only thing that matters is uh, a greater amount of happiness, right? Um, so the greater amount of happiness being the only thing that's taken into account, uh, this works out on paper um, with a lot of things that you throw at it, man. You know, you might have seen like the trolley, uh, the, the, the trolley memes about like the... The, the, the train tracks that forked and on one train track there's one person tied up to be run over and on the other side there's five people left to be run over, right? And so 
right now the train is going to go run over those five people, but you can go and switch the trolley track and only kill one person. And in a utilitarian sense of ethics, this makes sense and checks out. And this is, you know, it gets more absurd as you start changing the variables in this equation. It seems pretty morally straightforward that you would go and switch the trolley so it kills one person instead of the five, right? Um, but the situation grows more uh, morally complex to reason and points out different kind of uh, interesting things about the logic when you when you start throwing variables into the trolley track. You know, like if you say like, okay, well, here's five people who are going to die and the one person that's tied up is a person that has a cure for cancer. Do you run over the five people anyway or do you... Sw do you switch the trolley track and kill the guy with cancer because you had to add it? You know, and so there's also the thought process of like, uh, things can be reasoned as a means to happiness. Like you could in a way say like, we're going to kill the five people on the trolley track because this one person that's tied up has a cure for cancer. And though we may take the short term, short term hit in happiness by losing five people instead of one person right now, uh, this person is going to cure cancer and then, uh, we will have a lot more resultant happiness from that. Um, so these sort of logical, uh, uh, you know, situations, these thought experiments are, are vital in kind of testing these sort of moral theories, but also like uh, testing their, where they stretch out to, you know. Um, but there's also, you know, other types of moral theory, man, while we're on the topic of utilitarianism, right, Um Utilitarianism is a form of consequentialist moral theories, right? So being a consequentialist means that uh, the rightfulness of actions depends solely on their consequences. Um, and then there's people in the middle, and I would say that's most of us, right? Non-consequentialists, which mean that like the rightness of actions is determined not solely by their consequences, but also their something about the intrinsic nature of the action itself should be taken into account when we morally uh, judge these sort of things. Uh, and then there are deontological theories uh, which place every emphasis on the action and do not care about uh, the outcome at all. It's purely about the intrinsic nature of the action which the morality is to be judged from. Uh, so you know, all this being said, man, if we're going to talk about moral theory, right, and and each one of us has a certain recipe and formula of how much of each of these four parts of the moral pie chart we use in order to uh, make a moral judgment, right? And we oftentimes, I mean, as Kant thought the ration, that the reasonings of all men should come down to the same reasonings, right? It's not that cut and dry, clearly. You know, if you are too much on the religious absolutist end, you probably don't support gay marriage or uh, you probably don't support a lot of things, right? Because you're like religiously absolutist, right? And then if you're um, kind of, if you are a, a, a conventionalist about things and give uh, an, an unequal amount of weight towards a social authority, then you become these, this sort of a moral relativist that has no anchors and you know there are arguments against all of these different types of reasoning right like we've seen before that social reasoning is not uh, it, it, first of all thankfully it is criticizable right we can criticize society even though our criticisms are sort of diffuse amongst all of us we're not criticizing any one person we can criticize society Sure, and that's part of the process of creating a better society. But we've seen plenty of times in history where the general will of the people created an undue suffering for an overlooked, disadvantaged, and marginalized group of uh, you know uh, communities. You know, think about just slavery. At one point, that was the general will of Americans, right? Was that not the general will of the slave-owning founding fathers, man? You know, um... So that had to be worked out and overturned over time. And so in that, in that sense, man, like a social authority is not without criticism. You know, even, even a, uh, you know, the reasonings of, of mankind, right? Like, so maybe the third part of the pie chart, like 
the reasoning, the ability to reason, man's ability to be reason, is something that we could criticize all day because it's just it's just an individual at the end of the day, right? It's just a person that um, that it's just a person that maybe uh, doesn't. I mean, all people have blind spots, right? So how much can we? expect someone to be able to reason within the scope of what they know about the world, right? Within how much they've read, how much education they have, what kind of social situations are they familiar with, what kind of social situations are novel to them, and what is their ability to, um, what is their ability to handle novel situations, you know? Um, so, the individual ability to reason is not like an unimpeachable sense. Um, but then again, I mean, even if you go back to religious absolutism, man, like, you know, we talked about people with religion versus people without religion. Um, but how much of the individual reason, ability to reason, is affected by religious absolutism? I mean, you're not. We've talked about how we're not immune from this sort of Judeo-Christian moral hegemony, which is on the Western world, and we do, whether we like to admit it or not, which is part of like the the answer to the feedback of why I talk and think about theology and the concept of a God. Uh, you know, is because we we can't. We're literally programmed by a lot of that our sense of social authority and our sense of individual reason and our sense in a, in a sort of utilitarian sense that we're just trying to figure out what results in the most happiness, all of that leans upon the concept of uh, religious absolutism or even if there's religious relativism, I would say, you know, like it, it, but it's unfair to approach philosophy and, you know, the moral theory pie chart, man, without understanding the degree to which theology affects your ability to be a moral person or to morally reason. Um, so a lot of this, though, man, goes back to like, you know, not moral theory, but kind of social contract theory. Like, So we're just going to switch for a second and talk about social contract theory <clears throat> because... This tends to go to the root of a lot of this, man. We, I, I feel like you can't have this moral theory conversation without talking about uh, three different philosophers who spoke about human nature, the state of nature, the reason for having government, and how much we should obey the government. Um, so think about Thomas Hobbes, man. Thomas Hobbes, he died in 1651, right? Thomas Hawes was a philosopher. He wrote a book called Leviathan. Uh, and, but it's important to understand Thomas Hobbes to, to, to historically sort of seat this person as we describe him. Uh, he was in this very exciting time uh, when the age of enlightenment was just popping off, man. And, uh, and that, I think it's kind of seen that the enlightenment, the age of enlightenment uh, is seen to have started up um, with the publication of Newtonian's, uh, Newton's works of physics and Thomas Hobbes probably read this book and he uh, started to try to relate human beings to particle physics. I'm not shitting you, man. What he did was he took um, kind of Newtonian, Newtonian physics and talked about particles and how they interact on a, on a subatomic level. And he likened them to human beings uh, acting purely out of self-interest. And he made that the cornerstone of his philosophical uh, concepts of human nature. So the guy took subatomic particles and the way they bounce around frenetically and try to join with other protons or join with other subatomic particles, right? He, he made this a cornerstone of what he thought about uh, human nature and he ruled that human nature is to work out of uh, out of self-interest uh, so hang on let's just sit with that for a second because that is fucking hilarious to me okay um, it, he didn't look at it as like I mean could if Thomas Hobbes had like 
I mean, Karl Marx wasn't alive at this time, right? But if Thomas Hobbes had Karl Marx whispering into his ears, he could have been like, well, human beings' natural sort of way of, of being in the state of nature uh, would be to cooperate and join up with each other and form communes because look at subatomic particles because they, they, can, they constantly attract negative and positive pairings and they're always attracted to other, uh, you know, look at, uh, <laughs> you know, organic chemistry with carbon particles joining everywhere. Look at water, its natural status. The natural status of water is communist because it has, it has to join up with two, you know, hydrogen to one oxygen, man. You know, I, it's just it's just fundamentally fucking stupid to think of like anyway. So that's Thomas Hobbes, man. But Thomas Hobbes, needless to say, was very pessimistic, man. He had this quote on the state of nature, and by the way, the state of nature is something the philosophers just use to say what was society right before we invented civilization. What was that like? Well, Thomas Hobbes was like, yo, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Because he thought the status of nature was always at war, that men would always be at war. Um, and we would always be at war because we were driven by self-interest in this brutish and short sort of life. And so his, his reasoning for requiring a government uh, was because he thought that the government would enforce a social contract, meaning that like, you know, it, that human beings couldn't necessarily work out a Craigslist deal on their own. They needed the state to show up with a gun to enforce the contract. I mean, he he kind of insists upon like that, that the government is uh, the will of government is governed by natural law and no values given to the individuals, absolute values given to the government. And so Thomas Hobbes, man, I don't I feel like Thomas Hobbes would just, uh, he was like, I mean, I wonder when, I, I have to look up when Arthur Schopenhauer, a, a really pessimistic fucking uh, philosopher, but I feel like Thomas Hobbes would have been uh, best of friends with uh, Arthur Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is, I don't mean to bring German existentialists into this conversation about social contract theory. Um, but uh, Schopenhauer is the most fucking depressing uh, philosopher you can read. He is a pessimist, a straight-up pessimist pessimist. Um, and he would later go on to influence Nietzsche, if that tells you anything. But um, anyway, so Thomas Hobbes, right? Doesn't sound like a fun guy to be around, um, thinking humans are just driven by self-interest. Um, but around 1632, John Locke was born. And John Locke had a different sort of opinion about human nature. He thought, eh, you know, human nature allows for human beings to be selfish, he said. And he, uh, he pointed to the invention of money to testify towards the ability for human beings to be selfish. And, you know, as far as, you know, the state of nature, John Locke was like, well... Nature is reasonably good and enjoyable, but the property was not secure. But there was also peace, goodwill, mutual assistance, and preservation. So, John Locke, man, you know, you might have heard the phrase in, uh, you know, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's because, like, that's taken from John Locke, but his original thing was life, liberty, and property. So, you can tell John Locke is like, a material girl living in a material world, you know? Um, he is concerned with property, man. And, you know, John Locke was an English guy, and he was, you know, he had this radical notion. He felt like government was there. I mean, it was radical for the time. He felt like government was there to uh, serve the people, uh, ensure justice is seen to be done, and preserve and protect the natural rights of citizens. So, um, you know, John Locke was writing this sort of radical stuff at the time, uh, he lived most of his life on the run from the monarch, man, writing under uh, pseudonyms to not be caught. Um, so John Locke, man, you know, a lot of good, a lot of bad. I mean, a lot of dumb shit, too. I mean, it's the property thing. It's like, it's just, can we just sit with that and examine how, how fucking hilarious it is that, like, he's like, yeah, the status of nature before civilization was reasonably good and enjoyable. There was peace, goodwill, mutual assistance, and preservation. <laughs> but the property wasn't secure. 
I mean, it seems like if we're going to follow a logical dialectic on this, um, is John Locke saying that, you know, there was, what's so wrong with it being reasonably good and enjoyable and, you know, peace, goodwill, mutual assistance and preservation? Does that imply that there's not those things during civilization, but now there is secure property? I mean, I don't know. I, I, maybe that's one sort of anarcho-primitive way of looking at things. A society got fucked up as soon as there was private property. And, uh, you know, maybe we should divest with private property. I don't know. Maybe, um, anyway, that's kind of a communist thing, I suppose, right? Um, and the last guy I want to talk to you is this uh, Swiss dude named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Man, and this guy, if we've gone from Hobbes, which thought human beings were bad, and drew my self-interest over to Locke, who was like, yeah, you know, human beings and human nature allows human beings to be selfish. <laughs> Rousseau is just like the pot-smoking hippie dude, uh, born in 1712, died in 1778. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was just like, he thought human beings were, uh, in that human beings according to human nature were just saints. They were just without virtue and they were good without effort. I, I thought that was really cool, man. Just without virtue and good without effort. Uh, his quote on the state of nature was that life in the state of nature was happy and there was equality among men. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau also thought that social institutions uh, were responsible for the moral misconduct of, of human beings. Um, and he thought it was a rather obvious thing to point to, man, um, since his uh, concept of the state of nature was that men were pure and uncorrupted saints, right? Um, and he, he also like he shared a lot of views about why the government should be around, you know, um, you know, serve the general will of the people. The general will that the general will is a, is a term that he coined. Jean Jacques Rousseau uh, coined the general will. Uh, he thought the government was around to protect the natural rights of citizens, and he also thought that, um, like Hobbes, is the only guy over here insisted on blind obedience to the government, giving no value to the individual. Whereas within Lockean and Rousseauian sort of philosophies and they um they believe in the social contract and that individuals give up certain things certain freedoms in order to be protected by the state and ensure the general will but individuals have the right to withdraw from the social contract and even rebel so um Locke and Rousseau have a more kind of liberal way of looking at things um but I would also say man that like here's the thing man when we talk about and this is why I don't think these conversations uh, about social contracts, right? About why we have a government. You can't really separate them from moral theory. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said on what your outlooks are and where you fall on the political spectrum, depending on um, what your view is of human nature, whether you think we're inherently selfish, inherently a saint, or inherently driven by self-interest, right? Um, so all these things, man, you know... Um, they go back to, um, so religious absolutism, you know, big shock here, man. Religious absolutism had its day in the day of the monarchs, right? When there was one person ruling. And then I feel like, you know, if we looked at kind of even Hobbes from being uh, alive when he was all the way to Rousseau, that timeline, right? That has to do with the formations of democracies. And so we went from a governmental system that had a monarch where one person ruled all the way towards where we're in a democracy, which is kind of like, you know, a whole network of co-equals, right? And so religious authority was supplanted by social authority. Once we spread the authority out equally amongst all the, the individuals in society, Right. So it doesn't it seems like this top down need for order that we talked about in the notion also applies towards the concept of religion and also applies towards, you know, we take those and we transplant our views onto how we feel government should be structured. And if we are fine with worshiping one God and not questioning him, perhaps there's room in there for uh one authoritarian top-down sort of uh, being okay with that sort of governmental formation. 
And maybe as we moved on to democracies, we weren't so happy with, uh, you know, uh, a concentrated authority in the form of religious absolutism. We moved on to social authority just as we moved on to a socially governed, uh, you know, country, right? So as our forms of government over time dispersed and, or, you know, diffused their authority among individuals and democracies, so then did the moral authorities follow too, right? Um, so that being said, um, you know, there is this thing which I brought up last time that I feel like, you know, if you are a religious person or if you are a person who knows what it's like to be, to be religious, I feel like you can maybe agree with me that religious, uh, believing in like religious authority, the closer you get to absolutism, the more it kind of sets the stage inside of the mind for other irrational thoughts and other irrational actions and other um, beliefs which don't, that, that don't reconcile well with reality. And some of these beliefs are innocuous. Some of these beliefs are maybe even helpful. But man, like, some of this shit is just absurd. Um, so, like, I saw an article today. Um, I don't want to bring it up and give you specifics on it because I'd be distracted from talking while I did that. Um, but, it, you know, there was like a, um, a drive-through uh, Catholic blessing like a, you just stay in your car and the priest would bless you through your window with holy water. But in order to maintain social distancing uh, during this time that I'm talking about this during quarantine, um, the priest would shoot with a water gun, holy water into the car. So I don't know, man. I mean, maybe that's an innocuous thing, right? Maybe that's like, if you want to go ha get squirted with holy water by a priest um, while you're driving, or sitting in your car, sure, you do you, boo, right? I mean, but that like kind of, you know, I don't know anyone who is appealing to social authorities, rational authorities, or utilitarian authorities of, of you know, who would even want a um who would even want to be squirted with a water gun by a priest unless that sounds like fun and sounds like something that a, a good like bit of like facebook live material if you're a content creator that'd be i'd totally watch a video getting blessed um by a priest in a drive-through thing where he squirted a water gun at me mm -hmm. I, I, I would watch that 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 would get my view so um just to recap in this show man we talked about the notion and we'll continue to talk about the notion, but we talked about moral theory and how that breaks up into four different parts of the moral pie chart, right? And we talked about um, we talked about uh, social contract theory and other forms of like kind of utilitarian uh, uh, thought processes, like uh, they're not necessarily utilitarian thought processes, but. Uh, we talked about moral theory types of thought processes with like consequentialists and non-consequentialists and deontological uh, thinkers, right? Um, so the last thing I want to leave you with today is because we had all sorts of arguments, right, against uh, religious absolutism, argues against arguments against uh, rational absolutism, uh, arguments against conventionalist uh, lines of thought. But I, uh, I want to do this thing on the show where I just got some sound effects, right? So the sound effects I'm going to play right now, this is me making a Molotov cocktail. And I am going to burn down some utilitarian thought processes right now, okay? So here we go. And um, by the way, these are thoughts. These are not all my thoughts, man, you know. Um, but there is a philosopher known as Robert Nozick. And Robert Nozick, man, uh, I don't know what that guy was smoking, but I think it's fucking hilarious. So here's the thing, right? And I'm going to make this Molotov cocktail. And now... All right. So I'm burning a car behind me is what I'm doing. And that's what I want you to imagine me doing. Okay? 
So here's the thing, man. You know, if we, our only ethical framework is to increase the overall happiness, that's the only ethical consideration we have. Um, then there are some uh, conclusions which are uh, less than palatable, we shall say. Uh, one, you know, maybe we should just have a bunch of babies. Like, let's say we just fucking start fucking, right? And we just have millions of kids. We turn this planet of like 6 billion people into like 9 billion, 12 billion, 15 billion, right? We just, why shouldn't we? Wouldn't that increase the overall happiness? Not because babies make people happy, but because bringing a baby into existence versus leaving a person in non-existence, that is ipso facto, you know, more happiness contained within that action, right? So who gives a shit about abstinence or prophylactics? Let's just have a bunch of kids and the world will be a happier place, right? Oh shit. All right, so maybe that's not a good argument for utilitarianism, right? How about if we, uh, well actually Robert Nozick came up with this idea of a utility monster. Like let's say that there was an entity that derived demonstrably measurably more pleasure from every single thing that could be done under this ethical framework of utilitarianism, you would be morally obligated to give all of your joy to this utility monster. That you just eat all the joy and would derive more joy from it and would, you know, just be a, a, a joy-eating monster. Um, so, a couple more things, right? So, you got the, uh, the first argument about let's just have a bunch of babies. Second argument, you got the utility monster. Third argument, right? And this is a really dark fucking thought, man. Um, addition by subtraction. Why don't we just kill all the people who are not experiencing joy, right? If you're a miserable fuck and you have no hope for experiencing any sort of joy, if we killed you and rid you from this earth, then technically the overall happiness of this planet would go up considerably, right? Wow, that's dark. Holy shit. Um, and the last thing... And this is, I believe, what Robert knows it calls the repugnant conclusion, is that maybe the world would be better off with just one infinitely happy person. One fucking MDMA ecstasy-taking, vibrating, clenching his jaw with utter fucking serotonin overload. One infinitely happy person. Um, anyway, I'm going to put this fire out now. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to No Easy Answers episode two. Um, you know, I hope you guys are getting a lot out of this. Hope you're getting something anyway. Um, but we have just formed a Twitter, a Facebook, an Instagram, and a Gmail. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show, wish to take up issue with me or argue any sort of, if you wish to present a polemic, or if you just want to shoot the shit and be a guest on the jo on the show and talk about race, class, and gender, or anything that doesn't have an easy answer to it. Um, let's unpack some things, man. Contact me at uh, noeasyanswerspodcast at gmail. Follow me on social media at noeasyanswerspod. And thank you guys for listening, my guys, gals, and non-binary pals. I appreciate all the support, and I will get to you next time. Thanks. Bye.